I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before Neo Todd fired four shots at the door, I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss crime on the continent, as always, is Jared Labaskakni, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Profiler Africa. Please do subscribe and encourage your friends to do so. Um, we're available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler and um, please share the link with your friends at the office, in the gym, in your murder cult. You can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Um, please also join our Facebook group. Um, yes, and we would love to hear from you. If you have any links to any crimes, if you're a relative or a friend of somebody that's been affected by any of the cases that we discuss or any cases that you think should be on our radar, then please do get in touch with us. Um, you can message us on social media. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we have had some very interesting feedback over the last two years. Um, even though we haven't been putting out regular content, we have been getting interesting feedback. Um, one or two pretty crazy and interesting and that we will follow up on in the course of the podcast at some point. Um, so that's us. It's Profile Africa. We are back. Um, this is our uh, second new episode that we are, are producing in the year 2022. We survived the global pandemic. We've been making a lot of TV shows and now we are back to making some podcasts because, um, yeah, I was just missing you, Gerard. It's as simple as that. That's understandable. It is understandable, isn't it? You're a lovely, just such a lovely man. Um, Gerard, um, today we are going to talk about, last, last week we kind of had a general catch-up, or last time we had a general catch-up and um, discussed a whole host of things from the state of the police at the moment to what's going on in your unit to your book, um, your first book, The Profiler Diaries from the Case Files of a Police Psychologist. Um, unbeknownst to uh, many, um, we did mention it last week, is that you are currently busy with your second book. Where are you in the process on book number two, and what is it called, Gerard? So, uh, in terms of the process, I've submitted all the, the chapters to the to the editor, who's gone through them, and I think I received four of those chapters back for sort of just, you know... To correct your terrible grammar. Correct those types of things, yep. Um so obviously, the sooner I can get that done, it goes to someone who just who's sort of um, a professional, sort of I don't know, a second editor or whatever the proper correct term is, um, who then goes through everything again with a fine tooth comb. And then it's a case of you know getting the the, the graphic designers or designer for cover options, um, ask me what I think of them, formalize a title, and so then all the, like, the little technical bits and pieces, so that hopefully it'll be ready by. 
June, July to be in the bookstores. So where did you start then? So you finished your first book. You've kind of had the opportunity not only to to go through the process of writing it, but also now to put it out into the world and get feedback on it. So, so where did you start in the process of conceptualizing your second book? Um, well, I kind of always thought, look, I don't think I'm going to do a second one. Um, but definitely, if I ever considered it, it would depend how well, obviously, the first one does. It doesn't help if your first one doesn't sell and trying to build upon something that didn't sell was kind of pointless. So I think when Penguin kind of came back and said, don't you want to write a second one? And I kind of said, mm, let me think about it. And then a sort of a few weeks later, they said, well, you know, about that email we sent you about book number two, what do you think? And I still was like, oh, do I really want to tackle this again? And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and then eventually they said, you know, this is what we can propose as an offer, etc., and a little bit of an advance, which definitely always helps. And I said, okay. And I sort of committed myself to doing book two. And then, it, of course, it becomes a question of which cases. So I had like about, I made a list of like 17 different cases, you know, which ranged from the Oscar Pistorius case <clears throat> to the, the Hillbrow birthday rapist case, which I think we did on the podcast before, to the case down in Velcom where the couple killed and mutilated that young guy. Yep, uh, to a child pornography case, because I thought it would know, be interesting to bring in an element of that. Um, well, that's obviously, for many people, a sort of a, a very difficult thing to read about. You know, the PE prostitute killer, you know, a stalker case, a guy who threatened to kill Obama when he came here, you know, a homicide-suicide case. Um, so those are the kind of things. And then one case that was after I left the police that I worked on to the Krugersdorp sword killer at the school many years ago to an intimate partner murder case where a guy shot his, he was a military guy, went and got his firearm from the military base and went and shot, killed his girlfriend in a guest house. So those are the kinds of spectrums. And I was sort of thinking, which one is interesting? Which one do I feel like talking about? Because often it doesn't help you choose a case that you really don't have the motivation to get into detail about. So I narrowed it down from there to six cases, which A, as I said, I felt like writing about, you know, psychologically. And that I knew I had enough case material that I wouldn't struggle to actually um, put the story together in the level of detail that a book requires you to have, which, like I said, is very different to when you have a podcast. It's more of a conversation, whereas the book, you need to step for step say when, what happened, who, how, who was involved, how did you get to point A and B. So you have to have a lot more detail. So I'm quite happy with the ones that I ultimately did include. And some of them, I think, are ones with cases we've discussed here on, on, the, on the podcast series. So, what, Where are the avenues that you draw your research from? I mean, obviously, let's start with what you retain from your time at the police. But then where else do you go to fill out the story with you know, that, that really precise detail you're talking about? So I'd say 99% of, my, of the info that I use will be from the, all the police case files that we had at the unit. Uh, in some instances, I would have scanned a lot of that material back then because um, I like to have a lot of the material on my computer that if I needed it for whatever reasons. Um, so some of it would already have been on my, file, my computer files that I kept with me after I left the police. Sometimes I have to go back to the unit and go through files to get more detailed information. <clears throat> and between those two is pretty much the main sources of, of what I had in my computer and what, what's left in the case files. <clears throat> um, that will be it. And here and there, there's small bits of information that I might phone a detective and say, can you remember that specifically when the editor goes through it and says, but hang on, I don't understand this, or where did you get that from, or what was this guy's name? that I might then reach out. But like I said, 95, easily even more percent is from 
my old unit's case file, which would very often have a copy of the actual case docket, let alone our own file for it. Or like I said, what I had on my computer and sometimes my actual diary, my day-to-day diary, I flipped through that year, you know, if it was a 2013 case, I have all my diaries, my day-to-day diaries from back, or from back, I think probably early 2000s, if not earlier. So often to find out when I did what, what, where was I at that point in time, I'll go flip through my diary and say, okay, there I was busy with this. And also just to reflect upon what else that year I was busy with, to just sort of show again, you know, this was one case out of a whole bunch that that year I was dealing with. And I often will mention, but this year was the same case, the same year that this case, the Oscar Pistorius was happening. So almost people can put it into context to what else was going on in the world at that point in time. You know, there's, this this kind of makes me think about our ongoing theory that of the Gerard dark side and that Gerard is actually a closet serial killer. Um, I've seen seven, Gerard. I've seen all those. Do you, how do you store your diaries? Are they randomly stored? Are they chronologically stored? Because I've seen when they break into John Doe's apartment in the movie Seven and all his diaries. That's what I'm picturing. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to ask you about is, are there any limits on the information that you can share, whether it's incorporating a particular crime scene photo and, you know, into the book? Because, you know, as you, if you'll know, if you've read the first book, there are those sections between paragraphs with, with photographs that relate to the, to the stories that you are telling throughout the book. Are there any limitations or restrictions on, on sensitive material that you have to kind of write around? Or? Well, all these cases that I talk about had been in court and the person's been convicted. Um, the, it's a bit different once the case has been in court because the technically courtrooms are public forums. Everything that is mentioned in a courtroom is public information. You know, the crime scene photographs are handed, handed in at exhibits. Uh, unless, of course, a court says you may not report on the name of this child victim or this sexual offensive victim. That, but that was something that the court would have to specifically do and mention in court about the restriction. So if it's been through court, usually there's a lot less restriction. Then, of course, then there's more like the moral restriction, like... You know, yes, technically speaking, person X gave a statement. Do you necessarily want to mention person X's name just in terms of their own privacy, specifically if they didn't end up testifying in the actual case? So what I usually tend to do, if it was a highly publicized case where all these names are known, obviously, then I'm less restrictive about holding back someone's name because if you just Google the case, you'll see all these things, like Oscar's case, for example. It's been covered Um, in the stars. But then, like in the new book, I think there's one case that I don't think was ever mentioned at all in the media. Um, it was in a small town. This was a case where the guy threatened to kill Barack Obama. <clears throat> but it was in a small town, and the person was ultimately sent and became a state patient because he had mental health challenges. So, you know, that one I'm more inclined, even though it was a court case, to maybe not mention the guy's name. Because if you Google it, you, you wouldn't find this guy otherwise. And, and just sort of, you know, because there's mental health issues, perhaps be more respective of, you know, keeping the guy's name out of the story. Whereas the other ones, like I said, the Velcom case, which is one that I do write about in depth in the book, everything about that case was, was in the media, uh, etc. So, you know, even then there might be some smaller role players who, just because nowadays people can Google stuff so easily and find people on LinkedIn and harass them, smaller role players who, like I said, didn't testify in the court case are more inclined to mention just them by their first name. You know, Bronwyn, the friend of the deceased, um, and, and kind of leave it at that. So... That's more just the sort of perhaps more personal thinking and maybe I shouldn't. And of course, with the pictures, yes, I suppose I could have very gruesome pictures of naked women with their 
genitals cut out. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I'd want to do that because I also don't want to satisfy people who have a sick interest in this kind of stuff. So even if you look in profiler diaries, if there is a crime scene photograph, it's, it's someone lying face down very often, or it'll be at a distance and you can't actually see anything, yeah. um, you know, of the victim. So, you know... You haven't gone just for kind of a shock factor. Yeah, you know, I mean, as I'm flipping now, if there is a picture, I think one, two, three pictures of, of, of bodies, they're either face down or at a distance, or you just, you cannot see the person's face. But look, let's be honest, if you're engaging true crime content, then um, if you're not expecting to see... <laughs> some of the harsh reality of life, then um, you're going to be disappointed. You know, no, and I, I think, mean? quite frankly, if most people, and I think justifiably so, if they buy a true crime book, they want to see that there's some pictures. It just makes it more real than than just formulating what this was like in your head. Just you as could, a just as a curiosity, do you get a kind of a feedback on the on the male female skew of book one from a sales point of view? Do you get any data like that? No, I don't think that, you know, if you've got exclusive books, they don't care whether you're male or female. No, just because <laughs> I know that, that video, con- you know, television content, true crime content typically has quite a strong female skew with regards to the audience. So it gets quite a substantially heavier, you know, 67, 70% female audience typically on true crime content. It wouldn't surprise me because, I mean, if I remember when I was in the police, a lot of people that even now that contacted me who are interested in the, the world of profiling, it's, 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 it's ladies that are contacting me. So I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of the people buying the books were. So men are the serial killers typically, but women are the ones with the fascination of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of how it pans out, isn't it? The healthier fascination. Just as an aside, you mentioned the Barack Obama thing. I found myself in 2010 um, in a position where had I just been somebody with the intent to take out some of the world leaders, <laughs> okay, I found myself in the downstairs reception of F&B Stadium, and um, I'd man, I got to that point without. I got to a place where I was literally surrounded by. I had like, like the Prime Minister of Britain over there, Barack and Michelle over there, Robert Mugabe over there. And, you know, d- d- Jacob was there. Everyone was there, literally surrounded by world leaders. And I did not go through one security check to get there. I've gotten to this point where I'm literally an arm's length away from Robert Mugabe. I'm literally an arm's length away from Barack and Michelle. Yeah, and not one, I didn't go through one security checkpoint. Anyway, back to the, back to the matter at hand. Tell us about kind of some of the cases then that you've incorporated into book two that folks can look forward to and some of the cases that we will go into more depth in on the podcast in, in upcoming episodes. Yeah, I think quite a number of them actually we've already discussed on the, uh, on the podcast series at, at some point. Um, and obviously I always like to say to people that in you know, the book you get a lot more detail and de- in-depth into the story. So the podcast and the book would always be different to each other for those of you who are thinking, I don't need to buy the book because I've heard the podcast. So in order of the year, because I kind of always like to structure the, 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 the chapters in literally chronological order of the year that uh, the case occurred. So the first one is I'm going to be starting about is, is, is the Nisner case, the Heine von Royen guy, DJ, who murdered two young girls in 2005. Uh, and again, even when I, I think I might have said this before, when I, when I start to research the case to write the book in that level of detail, I often find out new things that I didn't even realize. Tell us the, the basic story. So in, in, essentially in that particular case, I think it was October and November 2005, literally about a month apart, 
two young girls, the first one, Jessica Wheeler, who was, I think, about 18, 19 years old. She grew up in Niza, went to high school, was working at a, at a local sort of coffee shop. Um, she went to Stones and Zanzibar nightclubs, which I don't know if they still exist, but <clears throat> in those days, they were along the main road that runs through Niza and literally right opposite each other. So people would go from the one to the other throughout the evening. Um, and she stayed in a flat nearby. So one night she comes home at about one, two in the morning um, and goes to a flat where her flatmate is there with two young ladies who he knows they were having coffee there. And she gets called out or gets a phone call and she goes outside to speak to someone downstairs. She left the door open. She didn't take a key. So clearly she wasn't planning on staying for a long time to whoever she's going to speak to. And she doesn't come back home. And long story short, the next morning her body's found at the Anglican church, which is right next to her block of flats, uh, and also along the main strip of, of Nisner, if you've ever driven through it, you know, partially naked, etc. And then literally a month later, uh, Victoria's Stadler, who had also been out the night, also in Stones and Zanzibar's nightclub, and um, was uh, left in the early hours in the morning, like I think about Topos 1, 2, and allegedly she'd go drop off the DJ Heidi van Royen, um, and of course doesn't return. And the next day her boyfriend's trying to get hold of her, and... Um, a few days later, her, her body is eventually found. Uh, there are lots of bits and pieces in between, which I don't want to ruin the surprise. Um, and eventually, um, Heine von Rooyen, the DJ who worked at Stones, um, his DNA is found. He also had suspicious stories about his interaction with these two girls. And of course, his DNA was found on or in the bodies of both of these two, two girls. And he's eventually then uh, charged and convicted. And on the appeal that they had afterwards, he was the, the appeal was, a, was was not accepted, and his conviction stand for the murder of both of those two girls. Uh, there's there seems to be some skepticism amongst his friends, family, the community that he's was responsible. Mm. Why is that such an aspect of this case? I would say still? that in, in most of the high-profile cases I've been involved in, there's some other conspiracy theory that people like to throw around. You know, with the Lee Matthews murders, conspiracies around that issue. Um, so that's not uncommon um, at all, to be honest with you, in many of these cases. Um, you know, with the Inga Lotz case, which that Stellenbosch student was murdered, lots of theories and conspiracy theories. And I don't kind of pay too much attention to them because as we've seen over the past year or two with COVID, any idiot can come up with a conspiracy theory. And the lovely thing about conspiracy theories, you don't have to prove it. You just have to create doubt. So I don't get too worried. You know, a court heard this information. He was very well represented by top-notch private legal defense uh, advocate Terry Price. Um, you know, it was heard by a judge and an assessor, and it went through an appeal pros, and still the evidence was enough beyond a reasonable doubt that the courts would uphold his conviction. You know, it's, it's things such as, you know, the, the guy who was overseeing the investigation, uh, director at that time, Ati Trollope, they made accusations about him and his involvement. Like I said, you know, a court heard all this information. It was tested in court, and there's other theories that it was these other people. Like I said, I don't get too concerned about that. I've seen lots of conspiracy theories, and I go with what the court has found. Um, but still to today, there's people who adamantly believe he's not responsible and oh, he's the nicest person on the planet. Well, you know, most of the serial murders I've met were the nicest people on the planet and the last person you would expect. So that's, you know, that particular case. Um, we talk about the PE sex worker, which I think we've discussed. On you the know, podcast. we had the opportunity to go down to PE and to kind of drive around to the various murder scenes and just to get a sense of, you know, what I, with that case, what I thought is what you don't realize until you actually go there 
is the prox is the, is the proximity of the bodies and the fact that he's gone and disposed of the of the one body on the side of the road, literally 400 kind of four hundred meters down the road in a little bit in a little open um, area where there's an embankment and quite a lot of kind of you know your typical Port Elizabeth fauna and flora, quite dense. Um, but the body, you can see how it's relatively easy to see Just from the side the of the side, road, yeah. and then to do the for the second body to be in. His, the back garden of the house that he's staying in, that is uh, the, the, the men that own the house, there's two gay men that own the house. And the only reason I mention this is because, you that you know, the police then are aware, you know, made aware of this body by folks on the property. They believe and, to be a sex worker. And yeah. you see a kind of, there's a sexual component to this. So you'd assume that it's not the two gay men killing a female sex worker just from your kind of experience. And then the guy in the cottage is the murderer. I mean, again. The other, other cottage, it was a nurse. So again, why? You have to think out of all those people, which one would you prioritize as your Sometimes suspect? Sometimes I get a <laughs> little bit guy. disappointed with the level of like <laughs> trying to get away with it in South Africa. You know what I mean? Can we have a Hannibal Lecter type just once that is like, we, well, we may have. Oh, we, yeah, really. These are the ones that haven't been caught. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an interesting case. And again, it works through the interesting also bits about at the trial, what happened and his behavior at the trial, etc. So that's that's nice there in that sense. Um, so that was the PE case, which I always found interesting for that. There's some really nice forensic work that was done, which is really great. And the trial was very interesting, etc. is the suspect behavior. Hmm. Then I talk about the, the Kruger's Dupe sort, Kruger's Dorp Kruger's sort Dupes. killer. Okay. Yeah. Um, Mone Haram, so who went to school with these samurai swords, in inverted commas, samurai swords, and you know killed one person, injured three others, etc. Before he was arrested, uh, and that's just for me from a threat assessment point of view and workplace violence and school violence, which is kind of what I really am into nowadays. It's interesting because of the lead up to that actual incident, there were so many warning signs, like not even ambiguous, like I'm going to kill someone at school on Monday. And, and nothing happened with that information. We're definitely going to do a whole episode on this case, but I would like to just touch on some of the components of it. What are your, you know, interestingly, in a society where, where violent crime is pretty prevalent, um, um, and we don't have the best statistics in the world in that regard, um, why, don't, why do you think we don't see more of your kind of American-style... Mass stuff. Mass murder. Sure. Because this is... is him, uh, uh, you know, had he had, had he had access to automatic weapons as easily as you seem to be well, able to order gun. them online in, yeah. in the U.S., they certainly would have been more casualties in this yeah. case. And his, his dad, apparently, who was in the security industry, did have a pistol that he kept at home in the morning. He said he knew where the keys were. Now, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. So, yeah, I mean, even if he just had a normal pistol or revolver, he could have easily killed more than the one that he did. So he killed one and, try and, and, and injured three more people. So I regard that as a, it, those were attempted murders in terms of the law. So for me, it's a failed attempt at a mass murder case in a school. Why do you think we don't see more? I don't know. I think maybe South Africans snap way, they don't bottle it up that long, they snap much sooner and act out, you know, I don't know. Act out at home rather on one individual. As opposed to bothering, waiting, 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 and then snapping on a bunch of people. Because even your masses, we've had, you know, two at Tempe military base um, many years ago. um, The Rosebank Rosebank Police Police Station, which could very easily, so one was killed and one was 
shot but survived could very easily have you know escalated to a, uh, something bigger and had he been more motivated to take out more people people in reception yeah. at the time or whatever he could you have. know we had the skewer look which was that young guy in that town in the northwest province where he went to the township with a hunting rifle and shot a bunch of people so there have been incidences but definitely not anywhere near the level that we've seen remotely to what you see in the united states and, and not in the school environment when we get school shootings it tends to be you know, an angry boyfriend coming to his girlfriend who's a teacher and shooting her as opposed to an attempt at a mass shooting. Now, for those of you who don't get enough Gerard, who haven't had enough of his book, who don't, haven't listened to our podcast enough times, they just want more and more Gerard, um, you can actually check out on YouTube. Um, Gerard's got a gun channel on YouTube called Zulu Alpha, where um, because you are a, a, an enthusiast with firearms and it's a hobby that you enjoy, and I know that you collect some classic guns and you seem to be your typical South African gun owner in that you seem to be constantly applying for and bitching, bitching about licenses and things. <laughs> um, um, you know, how much do you think the availability of guns actually does feed into that, the reality of American kind of mass shooting and that here in South Africa, maybe we are even, you know, although there are plenty of guns in people's hands that we are a little bit more Kind of yeah, I mean, the question is, how much do guns contribute to people committing mass murder? I mean, I always say that those are the instruments. We've had cars, we've had planes, we've had trucks used as mass murder instruments. We've had knives, we've had swords, homemade bombs. So, you know, it's not the gun that makes you the angry person wanting to go out and kill people. It's something that's gone wrong in you and your life and your circumstances. You then find a method to do it. So... I always say if we focus too much, I'm not saying we shouldn't have things like gun control, and I, I'm happy with South African laws about gun ownership. I just wish the police would apply it more effectively and, and not, not drag their feet. So I don't have a problem with that, um, personally. Um, but we need to focus on the angry person who gives off warning signs that they're going to do something. And, and as you'll see when we look at the Krugersdorf case, there were clear warning signs, not ambiguous ones, that he was going to do something, not some at some point, on that particular day. And nobody reacted to that and did anything with it. So we had to be able to pick up the angry person because it's the angry person who decides to pick up a weapon, a car, whatever, and go and harm people. And that's more of an effective system of trying to identify those in distress that need an intervention to prevent them from doing that. So I know there, is, there are a lot of guns in South Africa, legally owned, there's a lot of illegally owned guns. I don't think it's that difficult to say, you know, I, I would have done it if I could have got a gun. Because I think if you want to, you can get firearm in South Africa legally or illegally you don't have to have fully automatic weapons to to do these horrible mass shootings you know we've in the UK we've had mass shootings you've had mass shootings in Germany and other countries where Sweden and Norway where, where things are very perhaps even more controlled than in South Africa so far the weapon is one part of it and I think we focus only on it we're going to do a lot more injustice to the concept of mass murder than we would be helping Okay, so it's not the build-up that pops, it's the slow, we're slow-burn criminals. Slow not, yeah, and that, yeah, that usually yeah. leaves telltale warning signs. So yeah. that will get into a bit more detail. You know, it, the, the one thing I think it kind of behooves us to remind ourselves as well is, and I will try not to do this too much, but is that um, you'd think that, you know, where these cases do pop up, that suddenly the, the, the security, you know, the police and what have you now, 
gain a certain amount of knowledge and insight into these cases and therefore it becomes kind of an improvement for the next time it happens or maybe there's suddenly there's a little bit more cognizant about how do we track these warning signs etc but we're probably no, that's probably that's the opposite isn't it South when Africa I can tell you now really after that Krugerstorp case and that was in was it 2008 actually yes 2008 nothing's changed I mean, it's not the education department changed policies and systems and ways of picking things up earlier they just look at it wow that was a horror ter- unusual uh, event that occurred and carry on so no I can guarantee you nothing has changed in the education department even with it, that school about how do we actually pick up and assist kids in distress. I can guarantee you nothing has changed. We don't change as South Africans. We moan and rant in the media for a little bit, and then we move on. And, we just and you know, on. when you apply that thinking to, to serial crime, to your really, like, psycholo- sexually, psychologically motivated serial criminals, um, what I've come to realize is that, yes, it's hard to identify some of the warning signs beforehand but we should be a lot better at it than we were 20 years ago and there should be systems of whatever they are in place to start to consider to but we're not even at a place in South Africa really where we're starting to even think about the potential of we're not even thinking about thinking about doing that really, we don't think we? about prevention yeah the police crime prevention is driving around your police vehicle in the area where maybe there's been some more robberies than normal but not this level of and it's being, you can perhaps say it's not the police's job to find out in a school that there's a kid who's on the pathway to violence. No. The school has to have systems set up to, whether it's a reporting mechanism, support systems to help identify distressed kids, whether they pick it up through their marks or naughty behavior in the classroom or outright threatening, concerning behavior. There needs to be an early warning system to pick that up as early as possible, intervene and help. It's not reporting to get someone just expelled. It's re- report to support. And by that is the most effective way of preventing that pathway being walked all the way down to the end where there's a violent act. It just reminds you how many, how much more we could apply to Absolutely. prevention. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, yeah, you know, we can be good or bad at solving the crime. But even there, I mean, at every level of policing, you know, we're, we're, we don't seem to be going up and improving and refining. And it's kind of crazy when you consider how much more data and information and how much more insights, whether it's from people at a school level, teachers, etc., whether it's just from being able to analyze data in an internet environment and pick up people who are demonstrating particularly angry or kind yeah. of um, um, pointed kind of comments. Then, then sort of the next one, we jump forward from 20, 2008 to 2010, we talk about uh, Brian the stalker, who was a person stalking, ultimately started off with a psychiatrist, and it turned out that he was stalking about 40 different people. Um, and I don't know if we, we, we haven't spoken about him on the podcast. I'm no, we that. haven't. Um, just on, he actually, it actually brings up a point because <laughs> the one thing that stands out for me in this case. So he actually stalked a, um, a, a psychiatrist who you were friends with. And she then made you aware of the case. And that was what helped kind of bring it, in, bring it into kind of um, an investigate, a place where it was being investigated. Yeah. And just, you know, you got to check who you're stalking, who their friends are, because you picked the worst person with totally the wrong friend. Like, as soon as you got wind of it, you were like, okay, yeah. now so we're I mean, going to deal with I wouldn't with say this we guy. were friends in the sense we would hang out together and no, phone sure. each other an on our birthdays. An acquaintance. I knew her when I was working at Vescopi's Hospital uh, as a psychologist, and she was specialized in psychiatry. So, I mean, you know, I know her, and I knew mutual people who were friends with her still. So, she obviously knew who I was, and then said, look, I've had this case. 
depending whether it's a patient or a stranger, would alter how I'm going to approach it. If it's a patient, I would deal with it in our, in our context of the therapeutic relationship. If it's not, you know, etc. These kinds of cases are not easy to get the police excited about, are they? No, and I mean, we don't want to give too much away now. But yeah, it was, there had been one or two people who tried to get attention of the cops and they were willing. Here's a question, and it raised, so this is another, the next question it raised, which I wanted to ask you earlier, is when you're kind of editing... Again, and it's kind of your from a moral point, moral point of view, and what have you. When you're editing, is there information where you go, if I share this, it's actually giving the giving the criminal community too much insight into some of the method and some of the processes that we apply to catch these to catch the criminals. Yeah. So if there's sensitive investigative techniques or processes that haven't become public knowledge by now, then I mean I'm not going to obviously. How yeah, common do you? Ca- how often does that happen? Where you go? Well, I can't. I can't really you share. Know, that. By now, because also a lot of these cases, it's a couple of years ago. So a lot of things that might have been very sort of like, don't let anybody know this is what we do, have now become sort of public knowledge as time goes by. And the, I think because people just consume a lot more true crime content, that there's just generally a better awareness of some of the things to look out for if you're planning on being a serial killer. For so, so like for example, in the stalk case, I'm not going to give the ladies first names and surnames because you can Google them and then go find them and they can become stalked again. So I might just mention them if anything, by their real first name or a, a pseudonym first name, because it doesn't matter who, what their surnames are. You know, it's um, that's not really the the, the point. Um, so that's that case, which again we start off with one, and then it turns out to be this guy stalking like forty something people in total. Um, then we go on to the Velcom case, uh, Michael Fonek, which we've done uh, some stuff on before, and again it's just deep dive into the, also the psychology and. Uh, Etc. Not so. I mean, the case was solved very quickly, so it wasn't. A, it was good investigative work, but it wasn't a long, drawn-out investigative process. So it's more about the psychology into it and the fact of what we were worried about that these individuals could become later um, if they hadn't been caught. With regards to this this case, for one of the episodes of the TV show, um, one of the TV shows we're making, um, we spoke to Niku Smith, who was one of the um, investigators involved in this case. And um, he now works. It's amazing to me how many of the kind of law enforcement professionals who have left the police and your are your former colleagues who are now kind of in the private sector guarding mines, running kind of mine security or something around the continent, isn't it? That seems to be what, if we want to get these people back into the police, we just need to go visit all the mines around Africa. And offer them massive salaries because they get to the mines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then the final chapter in the book, um, which I decided to to write, was a 2013 case, as I've mentioned a bit earlier, about a guy who twice threatened to kill Barack Obama because he came to South Africa twice. First was in June, July, was part of a tour, planned tour through a few countries in Africa, about three or four. And then um, later when Mandela passed away and he knew that, that Mandela had to come out for a memorial. So he was emailing death threats to the consulate around both of those two visits. And how in the end it kind of wasn't about trying to kill Obama. Um, okay. So there's twists Ooh, in that's it. That's a nice tease. John. And really fascinating. And I actually, the other day, I made a phone call to the guy because I... I Always wondered how it went with him after this, you know, he's back in, in society. And I uh, had a quite a nice chat with him uh, over the phone, and I actually sent him profiler diaries. Oh, okay. Um, I said, did I, you I've sign his written copy? a book. Uh, I did, and I oh, sent nice. it down to him in where he's now staying. And uh, he said, oh, he's read it, really interesting, he enjoyed it, etc., etc. So, um, Has he calmed down? Uh, on the phone, he said he doesn't really believe in the things he believed back then. 
Yeah. Hopefully that's... I think we need to get into the, you know, I mean, it's come up today. We need to get into the psychology of conspiracy, don't mm. we? I think it's something that we can really cha- tackle. And that's very much linked yet. to this case, this kind of conspiracy yeah. concept that he developed. Uh, because actually, I think how these things apply in the kind of, to a specific criminal case or mm. in the, you know, to these practical examples, I think is something that we can maybe yeah. take some intelligence from and apply it mm. to things like COVID and, and, and the kind of world of conspiracy theory that we live in. Yeah. And, and, and he was actually, he's actually a very nice guy. I really enjoyed, I interviewed him for like two hours on the video. It's a fantastic, interesting video. Very, very nice guy. And, and back then I said, this is, this is a low level of threat and also how to, to not overreact or underreact to threats and how that you need to have people to properly assess it to determine what is the actual real concern about this individual. And it might not be the threat of him potentially, you know, because he's threatened to kill Barack Obama doesn't mean he's a real threat to Barack Obama. And how doing a proper threat assessment can actually just bring some Maybe balance. a mental health issue and he's more of a threat to his next-door neighbor. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, or or is he, he's a threat of sending emails. So, okay, no, he's not a threat of violence. And... And, you know, so I I'd, I'd felt sorry for him, but the, the, object, the assessment we did was objective and it was very low level of concern ultimately in the end. Uh, and he's back out in his little town carrying on. Um. You know, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, again, a little bit aside from the book specifically, but just something that's come up in the course of making shows and what have you. Um, it's, I, I've realized that, that I have a bit more anxiety about the potential for a lot of the people that you've caught and a lot of the some of the cases we've discussed the potential for these people to be back out on the streets one day and i was hoping that maybe you can appease some of my some of my anxiety about it or or not i've seen it now with the lee matthews murder and for those that don't know lee matthews murder it was a 2004 she was kidnapped from the university she was studying at in johannesburg turns out long story short it was a student or recently ex-student of the university that then kidnapped her and tried to get money out of the father. They paid, I think, 50,000 rand that night. And of course, she was not released and the body was found, I think, two, three weeks later. Also a case that I had some involvement in. Um, And, you know, he now recently, his parole date, which should have been only in 10 years from now, was shifted forward because of certain constitutional court rulings that gave life sentence people, you know, a bit of a discount. And the Matthews family had continually been interacting with correctional services saying, we want to be present, we want to make contributions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the family asked me to help to also compile a report that they could submit as part of their case because they thought he's going to come up in 10 years' time. They're, they're relatively old. They might not be around, but they wanted to leave with their lawyer their representations that could be presented at any hearing. So then I contacted a um, colleague of mine uh, at the prisons who said, no, no, he's, but he's coming up now um, for a parole hearing because of these judgments. And then I informed the family and they said, but we've been interacting with correctional services throughout. Nobody's told us that this has been moved forward. And then they kind of again re- re- you know, said, but listen guys, we're here now. And they said, oh, yes, sorry, but you know, it's because of these changes in the, in the constitutional court rulings of course affected some prisoners to get earlier parole dates. But even then, one day they get a phone call from the ex-prosecutor who dealt with the case saying, did you know that, Matt, that Matthews had a hearing last week? And they're like, what do you mean? But we've been continually in direction with correctional services saying we want to be present. And what happened and, is and they tried to sneak it through. I've gotten to meet Ms. Madden. And, you know, this is somebody who for, his, for the rest of his life will be 100% committed to, to, to 
continuing to seek justice for his daughter and see that justice is done for his daughter. So these are the things that keep me up at night. And the, the only reason why we heard about this sneak through parole hearing, as I like to call it, is because there is a policeman who sits on that panel who said, but hang on a minute, this is the Lee Matthews case. We cannot hear this case without further information. That colonel then contacted, I think it was Colonel Fonsale, he contacted the prosecutor who dealt with the matter, um, who then phoned Rob Matthews, Lee's father, and said, hey, this thing, was, I tried to sneak it through last week. So it's just scary. And I mean, that's a family who has the means and, and resources to continually keep monitoring. What about a poor family member who lives in an informal settlement somewhere? They're probably never even going to be contacted because, you know, also, who do you leave your number with? You know, I might have my phone stolen, I get a new SIM card. Who do I contact at Correctional Services, this big organization, to put my name down that you can and keep my details up to date? And even when we went now, they had a hearing with Lee Matthews' killer in um, Donovan Knight, Donovan Moodley about a month ago and I was present. They wouldn't let anybody else, they wouldn't let me submit my report. They wouldn't let the lawyer who had submitted lengthy legal representation, they wouldn't let him hand that in. They said only the Matthews family could ask Matt Naidu question, uh, Donovan Moodley questions. So if you think it's going to be you with experts and outside stuff, it's not. It's going to be that poor family member who can just sit there and say things to, to, to the, the uh, parolee and then they make the decision. It's absolutely scary. And they seem to only focus on, but how well behaved has this person been? How rehabilitated is this person? Forgetting that a judge gives you your sentence considering rehabilitation, deterrence of you and others from committing this crime, and punishment are the three most important things, but they seem to only look at the rehab. You might, I always say, you might have been rehabilitated, but it doesn't mean you've finished being punished. You know what I mean? If you've killed 10 people, your life sentences all start at the same time. So you'll still get your parole hearing at 25 years if things work the way they should. Should they look at you and say, but you've been so well behaved. You've done all these courses in the past 25 years. You, we really think we should let you go. It's like, no, you killed 25 people. You know, you should be punished for that probably a lot more. And they don't factor that into, which I think is undermining the courts. Absolutely. Sorry, that's my spiel. No, no, no. I'm, I, that is exactly what I wanted you to comment on. Because, um, like I say, it's something that I've come to learn about. And it's something which does keep me up nights a little bit. Because, um, you know, I, I don't want to mention the specific case. Um, but we had somebody reach out to us via, you know, somebody who'd listened to the podcast on Facebook. And they sent us a message. And it was um, somebody who claims to have and I'm I'm saying claims because we haven't verified this information but it's somebody who claims to have worked or ha- interacted with one of it's 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 a serial local serial killer case which is one of the most hectic okay and um this person is not somebody that I know that you will 100% back me on this, Joe. This person is not somebody that should ever be let back into society again. But what we were told is that this person went through a course with the person that emailed us. This killer went through a course. It was a a religious type, you know, a a spiritual cleansing over six months, if you like, and that they were now rehabilitated. And it seems from the conversation that our production manager had with them that it's potential, potentially this person is actually being let out of prison to, to, to go to, to drive and do certain deliveries and what have you nearby the prison. Um, possibly even, again, we have not verified any of this information. That's why I'm giving you no specifics. But it's like, uh, again, having 
delved more into the reality of, of, of law enforcement in South Africa, what worries me is that it's not something that I would be totally surprised about if it's true. And I personally think that the, the parole board, whether it's for a life-sentenced offender or for a person who has a, a fixed-term sentence, the only difference is the parole board, if it's not a life sentence, they kind of are the final say as to whether or not there's going to be parole. If it's a life sentenced person, it still goes to the minister who has their final say over it. So they have massive sway because if the parole board says, no, you shouldn't get parole and it still goes to the minister, the minister is probably not going to overturn the parole board's findings. Um, and if it's in the case where it's not a life sentenced person and they say, yes, you should be released, you're probably going to be released. So that, that little, I almost want to use the word cabal, that little parole board has massive amounts of power. And I can, I can pretty much almost guarantee you there's going to be corruption involved. Why wouldn't there be? If you are able to release someone at the earliest possible date, which is the first time they have a parole hearing, you better be making sure you investigate and do lifestyle audits on everybody who's on that panel, especially the chairman. Because they can make recommendations to say, yep, great, fantastic, be released. And, and I know a lot of the psychologists who work at correctional services, and they tell me horror stories where they've written reports saying, there's no way you should release this person. They are high risk. And it still says recommended for parole. You know, we make video content and TV shows now about, about previous cases and past cases, kind of retrospectively looking back on things that have happened and what have you. But it so often comes into my mind that... Um, we should be doing kind of investigative stuff that really, uh, you know, kind of objectively looks at at these types of things. But to be quite honest with you, I'd be quite worried about making those kinds of things, to be honest. Um, just because you don't know what the blowback's going to be like, do you? You don't know whose toes you're treading on. And, you know, because there, the there are people, there are people that hold control. lots of power in places. Mm. So. <sighs> okay. I mean, you know, we are a crime podcast, so, um, you know, kind of d d depressing content is kind of our, is our, is our focus. But things like this, we're area. worrying, worrying, yeah. Uh, well, you know, when it comes to these kinds of conversations, where is the happy ending? Because where's, first of all, the kind of public knowledge, where's the will, where's the intent to, again, even begin to think, begin to start to think about thinking about these things, like I would say, you know what I mean? It's like, it just doesn't seem to be happening. We're not going, we're not improving. Um, from what I understand of your universe, it is not what it was 15 years ago. It's just not. We were better 15 years ago than we are today. And it's, yeah, it's worrying. And it's worrying to think that, that, that there are just... No, naturally, just parts of the system that are going to, uh, and the consequences of this slow diminishment that might see some seriously troubled people released back into public. Anyway, um, when is book number two coming out? We, you know, and, and uh, when can we, yeah, expect to dive so into it? So it will be, they, they targeted sort of June, July. And then of course, it also depends on how quickly I get the chapters that have been sent back to me to sort of comb through and correct certain things and clarify certain things. I've got a current date, I think, of 26th of March to have gone through the chapters. I'd like to think I'm going to have that done a lot sooner um, than, than the 26th of March, which, of course, will bring things a bit forward. So, But anyway, June, July probably is the date 
when the book will be hitting the shelves. And it'll, it'll have probably the same beginning title, The Profiler Diaries, and then a different subtitle. You know, from Crime Scene to Courtroom or yeah. <coughs> Swords, Assassins, and whatever. Okay. <laughs> we haven't quite finalized. And a lovely picture of your face on the cover. No, it's, it's Come not on. necessary. No, it's, hey? I don't think people need to see my face. You wrestling, you me if you want to see my a, face. A, you wrestling a bull. A beautiful painting of you well, wrestling a bull. Well, it was me wrestling a suspect to the ground. Symbolically cases, wrestling I'm, crime yeah. to the ground. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, okay, go well, great. I'm, I mean, I'm... The first book is just a, just a page turner. Like I told you, my mother loved it. Um, I'm sure the second book will be too. Um, you know, you still haven't signed my copy, and I've got my copy here today. So, so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind. You can do it right now if you want. There it is. You can do it in blue ink. I love blue ink. Um, I don't know why I said that. So, Jared, thank you so much for um, kind of bringing us into your world a little bit. It's been nice to catch up with you properly over the last um, two episodes and to kind of really delve into, um, um, you know, what's been going on in your world, the, the, the feedback on book number one, and then the fact that you're kind of delving into book number two. I think it's kind of a nice kickoff point for now what we're going to do with the podcast, which is get back into cases from next week and really start, um, you know, sharing with you some of the the many 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 great true crime stories that we have access to um and obviously thankfully we have access to gerard um who has been involved in a lot of these things and if not you know it typically knows people that were so lots to look forward to on the podcast in 2022 thank you gerard anything else anything else we need to know about the book no, it's going to hey? hopefully be great. Hey, go follow Jared on social media so that you can um, know exactly when everything's coming out. We'll keep you informed as well on the podcast and on our social media. Um, what is your where, where do people find you on social media, Jared? Um, so I'm on Twitter. I don't really post much. Um, I think it's something like at G in Labuskakni or Jared Labuskakni. Um, and that's probably the, really the only social media, public social media that I kind of have. So my, com- my company has a website, and I got a well. That's it. Website. Then me and you yeah. are starting to do TikTok videos. That's going to be our next thing, Jared. Okay, because if you're not on it, if you're not doing it, then um, you're just not cool, unfortunately. So um, look out for new episodes of Profiler. Um, it's been great um, chatting once again, Jared, and um, it's lovely to be reconnecting with our audience out there. Please do reach out to us. Like I say, we are doing a lot of crime content at the moment. If you are associated to a case, if you've got thoughts about a case, if you've got suggestions, stuff you'd like us to do, if you're linked to it, if you're the family member of a serial killer or the friend, or you were in primary school with Stuart Vulcan and sat next to him in English, reach out, get in touch with us. Um, It's been lovely once again. This is Profiler Africa. Thank you, Gerard. And we'll speak to you again soon. Sleep tight. (laughs) 